one day, all of my children will be in elementary school. Uh, one day, not yet. Um, but I will say, um, this past Monday was our uh, baby girl, Elisa's first day of school. Pretty cool, right? Uh, kind of a weird time to start school, I know, but um, it just happened that way. She, uh, for the last couple months of, of this school year, uh, she's going to be going to um, a two-year-old class that, uh, in the school that her brother Elijah goes to. And so she was really excited about this, and the, the week leading up to it, or the days leading up to it, she's like, I'm so excited to go to school. It's, you know, she's sitting in the back seat of the car, I'm so excited to go to school, I can't wait to go to school, it's going to be so much fun going to school. And then when she got to school that first day on Monday, when Olivia dropped her off, she just started crying and crying and crying and crying. I think for Olivia, she was there, and she could hear it. It was a very sad thing. I wasn't there, and so I, it wasn't as sad for me. But she goes to school from 9 to 11.30. Elijah goes from 8.30 until 2. And so uh, Olivia took Elise and went home. And then I went to pick up Elijah that first day of school um, for Elise. At 2 o'clock, I went to school, and the teacher, Elijah's teacher, said, Mr. Kim, you would be so proud of Elijah. He did such a good job today. He was a great older brother. I said, really, Elijah, what happened? And he's just smiling, happy that he was, he was uh, recognized for his good deeds. And so I, I, the teacher went on, and she said, Elise was crying the entire time, the whole morning, and uh, she couldn't do anything about it. The teachers couldn't stop her crying. But there's one point in the morning where the whole school gets together <clears throat> for pledge and prayer, right, for the Pledge of Allegiance, and they pray together. And the whole school was together there, and Elise was crying, and so Elijah heard her, he saw her, and he went over to her, and as soon as he did, Elise stopped crying. I said, Elijah, that's so beautiful, that's such a great thing. Elijah, what did you say? What did you say to Elise to make her stop crying? And he didn't, he said, nothing. But as I was talking to Elijah, I know what he said. Because a couple years ago, Elijah was in the exact same place that Elise was going to school on the first day and crying and crying and crying. And I remember saying to Elijah, I said, Elijah, you're going to do awesome. You're going to be great. Just go in there, make some friends, and, and do like you do all the time. Just be your awesome self. And he's like, okay, I'm going to try. And then he's crying. And, and we got there, and he's like weeping and sobbing. He's like, Daddy, can you stay? I said, Daddy can't stay. Elijah, baby, sorry, man. This is for children, not for grown-ups. i got to go, but I'm going to come back, and I'm going to get you after school is done. He's like, oh, daddy. And then I, I had to leave. It was so sad. And the next day, same thing happened. I think if you ask Olivia, she'll probably say that for the first few weeks of school, he cried like that. He cried, he cried, he cried. I remember one day he said, daddy, can you just stay with me? Can you just stay for a little bit? I said, I'll stay for a second. And then after a second, he said, daddy, can you stay for a long, long time? And I said, I can't do that. And so I left. And eventually, after a couple months, the tears stopped flowing. And so armed with that wisdom, I'm sure that Elijah went, put his arm around Elise and said, Elise, right now, you don't understand, but I've been there. I've been there before. Two years ago, the same thing happened to me. I started crying because there's all these weird people. There's, there's big people and grown-ups I've never seen before. There's other kids who want to play with the things that you want to play with. You seem like it might go on forever and ever and ever, but I promise you that the end of the day is going to come. And mommy or daddy's going to come and get you, okay? And I'm sure Elise looked at him and said, okay, okay, older brother. In Korean, it's opa, okay, opa. And then Elijah kissed her, and then he left. As I was thinking about what Elijah probably said to Elise on Monday, 
I learned a little bit about suffering and what we need during times of suffering. What do you need when you're going through a period of hardship or suffering? What do you need when life is so heavy on you that you just can't stop crying and you don't know what you're going to do? I think two things that we need in life in the midst of hardship and suffering, we need comfort, but we also need hope. Comfort and hope are two of the main things that we need, the indispensable things when you're going through a time of suffering, you're going through a time of mourning, you're going through a time of pain, you're going through a time where you just feel like, man, this is endless, the hope that one day it's going to be over, and the comfort of having somebody with you through the length. This last promise that we want to look at as we go through these promises of God during this season of Lent, the last promise I want to look at is one of the last promises of Scripture. It's written by the Apostle John as he's been exiled onto an island because of his faith for Jesus Christ. They said, let's just get rid of him. If we put him in prison, he'll tell everyone in jail about Jesus. So let's just put him on an island all by himself. And so they exiled him. And in that place, he encountered God and God gave him a vision, a revelation for how the end of the world would be. And he writes this letter, this apocalyptic letter called the book of Revelation, the very last, very last a book of the Bible, we're going to look at Revelation chapter 21 and look at the comfort and the hope that he gives to a suffering people and that passed down through the years he gives to us, a promise of God for the ages. Revelation chapter 21, we're going to read verses 1 through 5 and to see this promise that God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. This is God's word. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, it's heaven, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men. And he will live with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. This is God's word. Uh, Amazing passage. John writes the book of Revelation to the people of God in the Roman Empire who are going through an extreme persecution. First century Rome, the emperor at the time was a man named Domitian. Domitian was on a mission (laughs) to wipe out the Christian condition. He was persecuting the church of Jesus Christ in such fierce ways, statewide, state-commissioned persecution of believers. Homes were taken and burned. People forcibly kicked out of their places, burned at the stake, covered in pitch and tarred and set on fire. Children being taken, Christians being thrown into the arena and being mocked and laughed at for the sake of sport and entertainment. These are the people to whom the Apostle John was writing the book of Revelation, of people who are going through suffering, people who are going through persecution, who, people who didn't know when this would end. What could he possibly say? What would God possibly 
call John to say to speak into the lives of a people in that kind of a situation, into the, the, the kind of situation that we hear about this morning, the Coptic church, the church in Egypt. On this Palm Sunday, two churches going to worship the Lord God, to worship the King. And in the midst of their worship, people coming in and taking lives, blood shed, blood, shed, blood spilled, lives taken because of the name that they bear, Jesus Christ. What kind of a message, if there's one last message, one chapter left in Scripture, what would God want his man to say in order to give hope to such people? What would he say? And in these words that we just read, we find not only the hope, but we find the comfort that every suffering, hardship-stricken, endurance-seeking believer needs. The promise of God is that he will wipe away every tear. The juxtaposition here is clear. They're facing the, in, the, in, in just the heaviest of persecution, a broken world, a world that hates them and the things of God that they stand for, juxtaposed, contrasted, could not be more clearly contrasted with the hope that one day a day is coming where there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things is gone and he's making everything new. This is a juxtaposition. Just two things I want to talk about today. What does the world promise to us? And then contrasting with that, what does God promise to us? The first thing, the world promises this, very simple, in this world... You will have tears. I don't think even the youngest of us understand that that's true. The world promises a lot of things, but the one thing that the world promises, and it actually comes through on that promise, is that in this life, you and I, every single person, whether we're a believer or not, we will shed tears. There will be tears. When Olivia and I first got married, she was home one day. I was away. Uh, And she called me, and immediately I could tell in her voice that she had been crying, and that she was crying. I said, Olive, are you okay? What's going on? And I was very concerned, because I was not with her. We're newlyweds, far from each other. I said, what's wrong? Are you crying? And she's sobbing, and she's like, yes, I'm crying. I said, why are you crying? And she said, because... I'm cutting onions, <laughs> that's what she said. And I laughed, and I laughed, and I said, I married the right woman. This is awesome. <laughs> a few months later, I got another phone call one Saturday morning, and she was crying again. And so I said, ha, ha, ha. are you cutting onions again? Right? She, was like, she didn't say anything, actually. She was silent. I said, Olive, are you cutting onions, I said? What's wrong? Why are you crying? So she had gone to uh, feed homeless folks and take care of some of their needs with a group of people downtown Orlando and Lake Eola. And she was moved in a pretty deep emotional way, just looking at the brokenness in our city, Orlando, in downtown, the people who were longing for food, people who didn't have a home, people who didn't have clothing and shelter. And and there was a stack of clothes that were on tables and and people were looking through them. And she said what moved her the most, what pained her the most was she saw this lady, middle-aged lady, and she was looking through the clothing and she picked up and held up a bra, a, a bra that was tattered and torn and dirty And she held it up to see if it fit her. And Olive was saying, how is it that people can live in this way, in such brokenness and hardship, 
that these are the things that they seek out in a place like that. If there's one thing in life, and I, I could obviously talk about things that are more tear-inducing than that. But in this world, the one thing our world promises is that there will be tears. There will be suffering. There will be hardship. There will be pain. And if any of us have not experienced that, then very quickly and very soon and in short time, we will. But we know what this is like. In fact, for some of you in here, this may be a stumbling block to you actually coming to put your faith in Jesus Christ. If there is a God and he's everything that the Bible and everything that the church says he is, then why is this world so messed up and broken? Why is it so hard? Why are there so many tears? We argue if the world is this broken and God is good and God is powerful, then these two things shouldn't be. Something is wrong if God really is good and they're still suffering, then either God is not good, God is not powerful, or God is not real. It's interesting because in America, these are what some of the books that argue for the faith in Jesus Christ talk about. It's a major stumbling block. It's a major roadblock to our faith in Jesus Christ. But here's the the interesting thing. In, in scholar after scholar and author after author, pastor after pastor that I've read as it talks about the problem of suffering, say the only place in the world where people consider this, the problem of evil and suffering, to be a stumbling block to our faith in Jesus Christ, the God of the Bible, is here in America. Isn't that interesting? See, in other places, nobody, they just say, hey, you know what, suffering hearts are just part of life in this world. It's just, a, it's a reality. We still put our trust in God. We love him. We trust him with everything that we have. We lay down our lives for this God. But what about evil and suffering in the world? What about it? This is life. It's just the way life is. It's the way that the world is. It's broken. It's sinful. And they not only tolerate it, but they say there's a purpose for the suffering. I see it. My life is being changed because of the suffering. It's in America who hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal and that we are entitled to, entitled, entitled to three things, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, you tell people this is your entitlement, the pursuit of happiness. In, in, in the majority world, they'll say, are you kidding me? That's not, that's not my entitlement. That's not my right. That's my dream. I would dream to be able to pursue happiness. But it's in America where we are drowning in comfort that we think anything other than a life of comfort points to the non-existence of the God of the Bible. See, it's interesting, isn't it? Because in other places, the goodness of the God of the Bible and the suffering of life in our world are not mutually exclusive. They have no problem reconciling these two things. But here in our country, where we are living with so much, we think that if I don't have everything that I feel entitled to, then God must be at fault. And I'm not going to go into this, but to say, think about that. Because in the book of Genesis, and not like God needs any kind of a defense, but in the book of Genesis, when you talk about the world being created, the biblical writers are absolutely, utterly clear that with everything that was created, the Bible writers say, and it was good. And at the end of it all, he said, it was very good. In other words, the brokenness of the world is not pointing to a flaw in God or in his character, in his power, in his goodness, in his ability to stop these things. Saying the fundamental problem with human suffering is not the goodness and power of God. It's in the freedom of our humanity to make the kind of choices that have created a world 
that is in desperate need of redemption and God's intervention. So again, I'm not going to go into it, but here's what Revelation does say. Okay, this passage doesn't explain all the whys, and we, we talked about that in Genesis 3.15. You can go back and listen to it. But one of the things that it does say, it doesn't talk about the cause of the tears here, but it talks about the symptoms of the broken world in which we live. Three things here. Verse 4, he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. These are the very things that cause tears to fall from our eyes and the eyes of every inhabitant on this planet. Death. Ernst Becker wrote a book called The Denial of Death. He says, we do everything we can in our world to cover up the one undeniable, inevitable reality of every single life, that we will all die. He says, we are so deathly afraid of death that we will do anything we can in order to deny its reality, to push it back, to, to delay it, to, to doubt it, to whatever it is, in order that we can delay our date with the inevitable. I was thinking about this as I was walking through one Saturday morning after we had a prayer meeting. I was walking through the, uh, the other building on my way to the office, and I uh, saw a couple people from our Korean-speaking congregation, and I said hello to them, and I walked by. And as I walked by, went to my office, dropped something off, and I was coming back into this building and some folks were setting up stuff in here. And I walked by the office and I heard those two people who had been here for, for quite some time. They'd known me for quite some time. And they were saying, and I overheard them gossiping about me. <laughs> they said in Korean, Pastor David is getting white hair. He is getting older like the rest of us. And I said to myself, is it really that noticeable? Could they really tell? Every time I look in the mirror now, as I see white hair, and I see less hair, and I see thinning hair, I'm reminded of the inevitable fact that unless you're Benjamin Button, you're getting closer and closer and closer each time you look in the mirror to the person who will one day meet their maker. I realize we're all getting closer to that day of death. And so I think about, man, you know, there's a bunch of people in our church who are doing the skincare thing, and maybe they'll come up with something for, for uh, hair, for hair growth. And I wonder, what can I do in order to make it not look like I'm getting closer to my demise? But haven't we thought that? We try to deny death sometimes. It's interesting because there's a whole industry that sells you things in order to prepare for death. Here, you, you, you know what this is called because sometimes your friends will call you up and say, hey, I want to meet with you for lunch, and they sit down to eat with you for lunch, and then they bust out this pack and they want to sell you something. It's like, dude, I didn't know this was what this is all about. They come to your door, and they'll, they'll knock on your door and say, hey, I'm trying to sell you something. What is this called? It's, some, it's called insurance, but it's meant to only kick in after you die in order to protect your family in the event that you die so that when you die, they'll give your family a bunch of money. What is this? What, this is, I mean, what is this? It's insurance against death. But what do they call it? They call it life insurance. Nobody wants to buy death insurance. You want death insurance? No way. I don't want to think about death. Hey, do you want life insurance? Yeah, I'll buy life insurance. We do everything we can to deny the reality of death. I read this in a book the other day. It says, you know, back in the day, you drive by uh, this big, huge field, green grass, and it's got these tombstones on it, right? What are these things called? They used to be called graveyards, cemeteries. 
But these days, you see these places popping up. They don't call them graveyards. That would be far too grave. They don't call them cemeteries anymore. They call them memorial homes, memorial gardens. Well, I'd, like to, I'd like for my loved one to rest in a garden, not a graveyard. We change the language. There's a whole, there's a whole book written about how we change the language around death in order to deny it because we know that if we think about death long enough, the tears will start to flow. It's not just death. It's mourning, right, which comes as a result of death. Someone passes away. We mourn. We grieve. We, we, we tear up. We cry. We sob. We weep because we mourn over that which we lost. We mourn over the regrets that we had. I wish I had done this. I wish I had done that. I wish I had said this. I wish I had spoken this. I wish I had done this more. We mourn and we grieve over these things. We mourn over what will be lost, that I will never feel the touch of that person's hand against mine anymore. We mourn the late night talks that will never be had. We mourn the decisions that we're going to make because we didn't have their wise counsel with us. We mourn because in this world, if there's something that it promises, that it will always come through, that in this world we'll have tears. It's not just death. It's not just mourning. There's pain also. There's pain, our own pain, the pain of other people. There's a pain, man. You can't watch a video on Facebook these days without crying because of some kind of pain, even if it's a feel-good story. You cry over the pain of sickness. You cry over the pain that that person was bullied to the point where it's even a story that somebody invites them to prom. We cry over the brokenness of the, we cry over the, brokenness of the man whose interview on New York Times, you see this. Two twin nine-month-old babies who were killed by the chemical attacks in Syria. Wife dying. 25 family members of his died. We cry over the pain. The pain of others as well as our own pain. And if there's one thing that pain does, one purpose of pain, is that it tells us that something is not right. If you don't feel pain, then you'll never know that something is wrong. But the reason you feel pain in your finger is because it's telling you that there's a splinter that ought not be there. The reason you feel that pain in your chest is because you're working yourself to death and you're stressing yourself to death and you need to deal with that or else death is going to deal with you. Pain tells us that something is wrong. We've got to change the reason we feel that numbing ache within our, our, our hearts. When we see someone pass away is because it's telling us that something is not right in this world. Pain is the clearest indication that something is not right. And if the world promises that there will be tears in this world, then the one thing these things are meant to tell us is that we are not home in this world. Understand this. The reason we cry is because we're not home in this world. And the reason for our disappointment and the reason for some of our suffering is so that God would detach us from our attachment to the things of this world to remind us that this place isn't our home. You ever have these times where you get this great new thing, whatever it is? I got this great new job, and I'm rolling in the money, and I'm so excited, and life is great. In order to prevent us from being attached to that thing, the investment that we make falls through. And all of a sudden, we're like, dang, this world is not my home, and money ought not be my attachment. You get this brand new minivan. I've made it. I'm the ultimate soccer mom now. I'm going to boast to all the other soccer moms. I didn't just get the LE. I got the super XLE, and, and this is souped up. Amazing. The envy of all the soccer moms, and then as you think that, poof, you get into an accident. 
And God says, don't become too attached to the things of this world. There will be tears because we're not home yet. The official baseball team of Harvest, the Baltimore Orioles, woohoo! 4-0, the only undefeated team left in the major leagues, yeah! But one day we're going to lose. And God says, don't be so attached to the things of this world. Because if there's one thing that the tears tell us, it's telling us that we're not home yet. First thing we see, the world's promise, there will be tears. But the second thing that we see, God's promise, when you get home, I will wipe away every tear. Every tear be wiped away when we get home. Tim Keller writes this book on uh, uh, walking with God through pain and suffering, and he talks about, she wasn't him, it was Philip Yancey, Philip Yancey in a book called Rumors of Another World. He talks about this author named, uh, this, this, this uh, scholar named Albert Rabateau, and his uh, main focus of, of study was on uh, religion amongst the slaves in America. In 1847, he talks about this, this prayer meeting that was held in America amongst these uh, American slaves. They said that they would gather together late at night in the dark, and in order to prevent from being caught, they would meet in swamps. And there would be signs posted on trees guiding the way. And when these slaves would get together, they would just weep together that somebody understands. And they would begin the time, and they'd say, how are you doing? How's your morale? How's your heart? How are your spirits? And they would talk about the lynchings of their family. They would talk about the beatings that they had endured. They would talk about the loved ones who had already gone on before them. And then they would begin to pray. And they said, when we began to pray, all of our sufferings began to melt away. We were in the presence of God. And one person, and I I love what he said, He said, when I got together with my fellow brothers and sisters and we began to pray, he said, I thank my God that I will not live here forever. I thank my God that I will not live here forever. This is our hope. And God says, one day when you get home, I will wipe away every tear from your eyes. He says in verse 3, uh, I'm sorry, verse, uh, verse 3, he says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. The language when he says, now the dwelling of God, says, now the home of God, now the house of God the inhabitation of God, you will finally be home in that place and you'll only be home when you're with him. So don't make your life here on earth your home because you'll always end up disappointed. Because one day you'll be home and home means intimacy. It means, it means beauty, it means comfort. And he says one day as God dwells with us and we dwell with God, the great promise, what does he promise about the tears? He doesn't say God will be with them and one day an angel will wipe away their tears. Doesn't even say I will send my servant of heaven to wipe away your tears. 
He doesn't even say, Peter will wipe away your tears. What does it say here? It says, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. What does this mean? It means in order for God to wipe away your tears, he has to get so close to you to lovingly and gently wipe the tears from your eyes. This is what God is saying. The very last thing that he's saying to the people that persecuted a Roman Empire, the very last word of Scripture is one day. Don't worry. A better day is coming. Home is coming. And no matter what happens in this planet, on this earth, you will be home. And I will be so near to you on that day that I will wipe away every tear. I personally will wipe away every tear from your eyes. And the scholars and the historians say that it worked in the Roman Empire. These men and women of faith, armed with the hope of the gospel, armed with the promise of heaven, armed with the hope that one day I'll be home and every tear will be wiped from my eyes, were able to boldly stand up for Christ, to stand in the face of persecution and to smile, to thank their captors for sending them home, to sing songs of praise to God, and to say, forgive them for they know not what they do in the same line as their Savior Jesus Christ did. Why? Because in the face of suffering, the one thing we need more than anything else is comfort and hope. And the promise of God is given to us, the promise of comfort and the promise of hope. See, we can endure anything as long as there's hope. But Keller writes about how these two prisoners sentenced to, uh, to jail time. Uh, both of them had families, wife and children. Both of them went into prison. But right before one went in, he was told that his wife and children had been killed. He goes into the prison, curls up in a ball, broken, mourns, weeps. In two years, he just withers away and dies. The other man, 10 years, faithful, stays strong, endures until the end, and gets out, and he gets with his family. Why? What's the difference? Simple. It's hope. Hope is what causes us to endure. What other than this promise that one day God will wipe away every tear from your eyes, what other hope is there that is big enough and massive enough and strong enough for us to face the death of loved ones? For us to endure sickness that people say, the doctors say, is only going to give us another couple months to live. What hope is there in this life when we see tragedy after tragedy, atrocity after atrocity? We hear the news. We read the reports. What other hope can anchor us to stand in the face of suffering and not only to survive, but to boldly declare the witness of God? What other hope is there that causes us to move into the suffering, to follow Jesus Christ, Instead of to run away from it, what else can do that unless we know that there's a better world coming? Unless we know that there's a hope of heaven? Unless we know that we're not home in this world? I have a friend I, I grew up with. Parents known each other for 40 years. Uh, grew up in the same church. Uh, great family. We went to high school with Olivia. His name is John. John was ministering out in St. Uh, Louis while he was in seminary. And then uh, about maybe five, six years ago, he went back to Virginia, our home church, and he began serving there as an executive pastor. And as he moved back to Virginia, to Northern Virginia, um, his parents, who still live there, they've been elders at our church. Dad fixed my cars when, when I was living up in, in, in Northern Virginia. 
when John, Sarah's his wife, and their two children uh, moved back to Virginia, uh, their parents built this house. Uh, I think it was in, in, in McLean, Virginia, one of the baller areas. Uh, 7,500 square foot glass house. Floor to ceiling is written up in architectural magazines. It's interesting. I was reading the article as I was preparing for this message, and um, the architect was another girl that we grew up in church with. Very interesting. But three stories, right? 7,500 square feet surrounded by trees so that in the four seasons of Virginia, everywhere they go in the house, they can look at the changing foliage. Beautiful, beautiful. Three generations live there. Everything is like completely modern and beautiful, custom made, all of these, the whole nine yards. You can look it up. It's called the Bridge House, okay, the Bridge House in, in Virginia. And as uh, John and, and Sarah moved back to, to D.C. for that time, his uh, dad said, this is a dream come true for my family, three generations to be together in this home. John's mother said, the luckiest thing, the luckiest thing in my life, to have my grandchildren living upstairs for me. Two years ago, uh, John and Sarah felt called to leave that and to go back to St. Louis. Uh, Sarah is a social worker. She has a heart for the underprivileged, economically distressed people in the ghettos in the hood. A couple years ago, uh, actually, no, last year, last year, they went back to St. Louis. They had a place, and Sarah was going in 45 minutes to work with kids in the hood as a social worker. And she began to realize, man, there's this, like, dissonance in my heart because I'm going in working with these kids who have nothing, and then I'm going back to my home, and swooping in like this, there's just... There's no credibility in me doing that. And so they said, we need to move closer to where the action is. They bought this like 115-year-old house at creeks in the middle of the night. Scared them the first few months they were living there. About a month ago, uh, John and Sarah's putting the kids down for, 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 for bed. And they hear shouting outside of their house. Crime had been growing in that community. Shouting, gunshot. John yells to the kids, get away from the windows. He runs outside, hears people screaming. Next thing you know, John is cradling the 72-year-old head of an African-American man who had come from the East Coast to St. Louis, one purpose, to visit his newborn granddaughter, a victim of a carjacking, two young, young teenagers in St. Louis. And while 911 is on the phone, John is doing mouth-to-mouth resuscitation with the 72-year-old man who would later die within a couple hours. Blood all over their porch. Their home became ground zero for that family and for other families in that neighborhood to protest. Some people got angry, but John and Sarah were like, don't be angry, man. When these guys get it, we need, to, we need to help these kids. We need to help these people. So what are you going to do? Now you moved from all, left all that in Virginia to come here, and, and this is what you get. And John and Sarah said, we're even more deeply committed to this neighborhood than we've ever been. Our kids are going to grow up, and they're going to get street smarts. They're going to build empathy. They're going to have a love for this city that we never had growing up because they're in the middle of it. We are so deeply committed to being here and shining the light of Jesus in this place. What causes people to go into the fire when everybody else tells them to run away from it? They cannot do that unless they have hope. That one day all these tears will be wiped away from our eyes. What causes us to go back to Ecuador every year when our beloved son Tico 
drowns in a river, when even the people of Ecuador said, why would you come back to Cabana? Why would you come back? We thought no one would ever want to come back here after they heard what happened. Why do his parents say, we're going to go back every year, we're going to give our lives to this country, we're going to give our lives to this area? Why? Because they hold firm to the promise that one day when they're home, that he will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and there's a people living in Ecuador who don't have that hope. See, the people who do the most good on earth are the ones whose eyes are most fixed on heaven. Why are we sitting here in this building dreaming of a better day for so many people in our area? Because one woman gave half a million dollars in the most painful event of her life to see her son go home to heaven before her. But she said, I'm going to give all of it so that more people could come to glory in Christ. The people who are most effective on earth are people whose eyes are most clearly set on heaven. I talk almost every week with with Mike and Esther Lee, whose daughter, eight-year-old Ava, went home to be with the Lord because of leukemia. And every day they say it's a struggle. Some days they say today was a really hard day. It was a hard day. But I also talk with them to hear about their dreams that they have for the kingdom, what they're doing in the mission field, what they're doing in Asia, the plans that they have. Their philosophy in life is like, listen, after Ava went home, we're homesick for heaven more than ever. We want to see Ava. We want to see Jesus. But here's the deal. God's given us life. He's given us a story. This is life. It's get into the world, make as much difference as we can, bring people to Jesus, and get out of here and go home to be with Jesus. That's what's living. That's what living is like. When he calls us out of the grave, our hearts are beating, but we're not still alive. But we come to know Jesus, and we fix our gaze upon heaven. The ones who are most effective in bringing about the kingdom of God on earth are the ones whose faces and gaze and hearts are most squarely set in heaven. Because here's your reality, brothers and sisters. In this world, there will be tears. But the promise of God is even greater. So if God is that good and he's that great, why didn't he do anything? Why didn't he do anything about the suffering in the world? I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what the Bible says. I don't have all the answers, nor does the Bible give us every answer that we could ask. But here's what it says. He says, God did do something. Here's what God did. He entered into the brokenness. He didn't stay sterilized away from it behind the sterile field, but he came into it, and he was, in what way did he come? He didn't come as a lion. He didn't come as a conqueror. He didn't come as a 35-year-old. He came as a baby, the very essence of a baby. The one job description of a baby is to do what? Is to cry. To experience the brokenness of this world so that no matter what you or I are going through, you cannot say he does not know what it's like to cry. John eleven thirty five, 35, the one memory verse that all of us can memorize says Jesus wept. Why? Jesus wept so that one day the tears that we weep will be wiped away from our eyes. Jesus wept because he willingly came into this world. John chapter 1, he came to that which was his own, but his own people rejected him. Jesus was treated the way you and I should have been treated. He shed the tears that you and I alone deserved. He didn't need to shed those tears, but he did out of love so that one day we could have the perfect heaven that only he deserved. His promise is that you're not home yet, but one day you will be. And listen, one day you will be, but there's a lot of people in this life that you know. All they know is the promise of this world, and they've experienced it, but they don't know the greater promise that one day 
their tears could be wiped away. Last night we had a memorial service and celebration of life for one of our sisters, Chelsea Hahn. Her grandmother went home to be with the Lord. And I was sitting there in the, in the congregation and I thought, man, this is one of the best, most moving memorial services I've ever been a part of. People went up and they testified about the life of a, just a, a beautiful woman, just a saint. I, and and I, didn't, I didn't know her well. I, you know, we had a couple meals together. She always said, I'm praying for you, Pastor. I'm always praying for you. Thank you. But I didn't know her well, so I don't know how much of it is you know, people embellishing in order to, to tell a better story. But I, don't, I, didn't get this, I didn't get the sense that it was anything like that. Talking about in her older years, her hunger for the word of God, and I want to serve my church, and I want to cook food for people so that they could experience the blessing. Even last night, uh, the family explicitly said, hey, uh, hey Pastor D.L., can you tell your leaders, no one, yeah, we're not accepting any gifts, no money, no one, nothing like that. Her final wish was just, I want to bless people and let them celebrate life. I just want to care for them. I want to love them in the way that they love me. Saying this song that says, when the roll is called out yonder, up yonder, I'll be there. When the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. And one of the things that I like to do at funerals, at remembrances of life, at celebration of a person's life, is I like to think about, man, what would they be thinking if they were here? And again, I don't know her super well, but as I was thinking, what a beautiful service, what a wonderful woman, what a wonderful lady she was, I couldn't help but think that she would be probably saying, you know what, I wasn't all that wonderful. I was just a simple, simple woman. And when she stands up and the role is called of yonder, she's there. And I think what she would be saying on that day, well, what a wonderful life I lived, but what a wonderful Savior he is. What a wonderful promise he gave. What a wonderful God he is. And the best thing of all, it's true. Let's pray. The promise of God that one day he will wipe away every tear. Says that to every single one of us in here. To the high schooler who's been bullied because she came over from Korea and her language skills are not that great, who sheds those silent tears. To the cancer-stricken young man who's been told he's got just a matter of months to live, To the child who hears their parents yelling and fighting and saying, this is it. It's over. To the spouse who wrestles every day with the addiction of their husband to alcohol, to gambling. To the people who every day work in the trenches and hear stories of abuse and see scars on their own children as they teach in underprivileged communities. To the counselors who have to bear the burden of so many secrets and so many tears. To the doctors who see countless people pass away under their watch. The promise of God is the same for every single one who put their trust in Christ. 
I will wipe away your tears. One day you will be home. One day you'll be home where there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Write these things down because I'm faithful and I'm true. Let's pray together for a moment right now. Are you going through suffering? Guys, every one of us is going to face it. Tears are the inheritance of life on earth. Jesus says one day I'll wipe away every tear. It's not a universal promise, my friends. It's only for those who put their trust in Jesus Christ. Only those who put their trust in Jesus Christ and said, I need you to be the forgiver of my life. Yeah, I've tasted in the brokenness and sin, but I need a Savior. I need a hope bigger than my own life. If you're here today and you have not put your trust in this Jesus Christ, that God is here and you can put your faith in him so that this promise can be given to you through hands of faith and prayer. And as we pray, let's pray for our own hearts, our own suffering. Let's claim this promise. Let's pray this for people who are suffering in our world. And for those of us who have yet to put our trust in Jesus, I want to ask you to really think about this. And in a moment, I'm going to give an invitation if you want to put your trust in Christ. But let's pray. Let's respond to the word of God for just a few moments right now. Let's respond to the word of God. Let's claim his promise. Let's draw near to the God who draws near to the brokenhearted. make it 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years, even the longest life, if you make it to 150 years somehow, for all of the joys, there will be tears, but God promises an eternity. A hundred years is just a dot on the eternal radar. That's why The Apostle Paul could say, I consider our present sufferings are worth nothing compared to the glory that is to be revealed in us. Eternity matters. Eternity is real, and God promises a rescue for sinners if you would come to him. So as we close our eyes and continue to pray for those in suffering, for your own heart as it suffers, If you have yet to put your trust in Jesus Christ, I need a ransom from heaven. I need a rescue from sinners. I need this hope in my life. If today you want to put your trust in Jesus Christ, I want to pray for you, and I want to pray with you just from where you are. If there's anyone like that, we're not going to ask you to stand up or sing or dance or anything, but just to raise your hand from where you are so that uh, uh, I can recognize you and pray for you from here. That's you, man. I, guys, I, I need a Savior. I need a, I need a Savior in my life. I need a, 
I need, I need this hope that one day I'll be home. As we pray, as we reflect, if there's anyone like that, yeah, I need Jesus in my life. Okay, thank you. I see you. If there's anyone like that, you can raise your hand. Yeah. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Yeah. Okay, I see you in the back. Praise God. Yeah. The God who heals the broken. Yeah. Praise God. Yeah. Some folks in here. Yeah, some folks in here. I need Jesus. I need this hope of glory. For the sake of the ones who raised their hand, as well as for all of us, okay, thank you, I see you. Okay. Precious, beautiful, beautiful young boy. Yeah. 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 For the sake of the few people in here who've raised their hand, one little boy up in the front and a couple others, praise God. I want to pray over all of us. I want to pray that as you hear these words, you know what, let's do this. Let's all repeat this. I, I, don't, want to, I don't want to miscommunicate. We have a little uh, young boy up here, and I want to encourage him. So for the sake of him and others here who are making this prayer, can you repeat this prayer? Let's make it your own. Dear Jesus, I confess I have done wrong. I have cried because of pain. I have made others cry, and others have made me cry. Jesus, you love me. I believe that. You lived for me, and you died for me. You rose again so I could live in heaven. I believe this, and I need you. Come into my life. Come into my heart. Save me from my sins and from my tears. Be my Savior. and Be my Lord. Help me to be person you want me to be. I love you because you loved me first, and you will always love me. So, Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the confession of faith that has been given through prayer from the handful of folks who have lifted their hands as well as maybe others in here. Father, we celebrate this hope. We celebrate the hope of Christ. And we pray that you would take this gospel and you would plant it deeply into the hearts of every person. For those who've made this confession for the first time or for those who need to be reminded of the confession that was once made, take us deeper into an understanding that we might grow to follow you. In Jesus' name we pray.